focused on the group's efforts to thwart attempts to steal Scrooge McDuck's fortune or his number one dime. The second season focused on a race for treasure. The third season focused on... You have reached the end of your stipulated leisure browsing time. You must now return to your revision of old world history. I was learning about the old world. I was learning about DuckTales, which ran for four seasons between 1987 and 1990. Wow, this learning pod really does work. Please select your subject of study. Ugh. Please select your subject of study. Ugh, randomise. And make it interesting. Family portraits are widely considered to be an embarrassing and stressful institution. The oldest child doesn't want to be involved and thinks the whole thing is lame. The youngest child is crying and has snot running down their face. And the parents are only doing it for grandma who lives miles away and maybe this will get her to stop asking them to visit more often. The only family portrait which is of interest to anyone, anywhere, ever was taken on February the 14th, 1990. On that day, NASA's Voyager 1 space probe was 6.4 billion kilometres from Earth, having completed its flybys of Jupiter, Saturn and Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Voyager 1 then turned around and took a family portrait of the solar system, with the Earth taking up a fraction of a pixel, suspended in a sunbeam. Cosmologist Carl Sagan referred to this image as the pale blue dot photograph. Pod, please provide more information on Carl Sagan. Dr. Carl Edward Sagan, 1934-1996, was an American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author and science communicator. His seminal 1980 television series Cosmos was described by the New York Times as a watershed moment for science-themed television programming. Pull relevant quotes from program. A new consciousness is developing which sees the Earth as a single organism and recognises that an organism at war with itself is doomed. We are one planet. Our loyalties are to the species and the planet. We speak for Earth. Our obligation to survive and flourish is owed not just to ourselves, but also to that cosmos, ancient and vast, from which we spring. Hello and welcome to episode three of No Planet B with Gemma Arrowsmith. Those of you listening who know me personally will know I'm a big fan of Carl Sagan. I wrote a whole show about the NASA Voyager Golden Records. I love his ability to use art to illuminate science and how he does so without ever becoming pompous or condescending. Whenever I'm asked for my top ten dinner guests, living or dead, I always answer Carl Sagan first. Or Rod Serling, creator of the Twilight Zone. It's a struggle to choose, to be honest. In 1990, Carl Sagan gave the keynote speech at North Carolina State University as part of the fifth annual Emerging Issues Forum. His topic was climate, and there's a bit at the beginning which is wonderful textbook Sagan, finding an unusual way to approach the subject. He starts by talking about Greek mythology, and you're wondering, how is this going to relate to climate change? Then he talks about Cassandra, who was cursed to utter prophecies that were true, but that no one believed. He says this is like being a scientist looking at climate. You can examine the data and make informed predictions, but policymakers don't listen. But trust me, he says all this with such poetry that I couldn't possibly do it justice here. I really recommend you go and watch it. Search Carl Sagan Emerging Issues. From Dr. Carl Sagan to Dr. Yuri Rogel. Dr. Rogel is our guest this week. He is a lecturer in climate change and the environment at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. In 2016, he was awarded the inaugural Piers Sellers Award for his world-leading contributions to solution-focused climate research. I talked to him about his work and the science of climate change. 
Hello, I'm Yuri Rogel. I'm a lecturer in climate change and the environment here at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Yeah, so the Grantham Institute is a global institute at Imperial College and that means it really works as a hub between the different departments and also as a hub between the college and business, civil society and, and government to actually bring the the research and the insights that we here at the, at the college create or develop uh, to bring that into society. For my research, I follow the international climate negotiations and the policy discussions rather closely. And by doing that, one can identify there where decision makers actually need more information. Mm -hmm. And that is what I've been doing now over the past 10 years roughly. One of those examples was that after kind of the failed climate summit in 2009 in Copenhagen, we still had kind of a global target of limiting warming to two degrees. But already at that time, there were around 100 countries for which two degrees of warming would be too much because it would imply too high impacts or too high risks for their societies. And these are particularly very vulnerable countries like the small island states or least developed countries that have little capacity to respond to these challenges. And those more than 100 countries were calling for a limit of one and a half degrees of warming. However, at that time, all the research was focusing on impacts of two degrees and at pathways and, and scenarios of how we can limit warming to two degrees. Nobody was looking at how we could limit warming to one and a half degrees. And so, for example, that was one of those gaps uh, that became evident from talking to decision makers, from observing what is going on in these international negotiations. And so that's why in 2013 I started to publish on how can we limit warming to one and a half degrees. And this was then one of the only papers that was available for the Paris summit and the only scientific evidence of how we could actually limit warming to one and a half degrees. Do you think that one and a half degrees is achievable? This is not an easy... <laughs> there, is, there is no easy answer okay. to this question. The latest IPCC report that had as its, as its task to look at uh, both the impacts but also the ways in which we can limit warming to 1.5 degree found that there, we have the technologies and it is, it is economically possible to limit warming to one and a half degrees. It is extremely challenging though. And many of those challenges are societal challenges. And the answer of whether or not we can step up to those challenges is not a scientific question, but becomes a societal question. It depends on whether decision makers and society make the decision to, for example, put a price on polluting carbon emissions, on whether we are happy to invest in renewable energies, to invest in a clean and reliable public transport system. As a scientist, we can identify and we can say we have the technologies, we know which policies should be put in place. Whether they will put in place uh, determines very much the outcome yeah. of where we will end up and that is, is not a scientific question. In many cases, we are very good at taking action, but as a species, we are very reactive. Um, and climate change is a very slow process. Uh, although it is a process that we understand quite well, and we understand that each ton of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere add additional warming to the system, it will only become 
very evident and clear to people on a, on a day-to-day basis quite some time in the future. Already today we see impact of climate change on extreme events, on weather patterns, weather patterns and so on. Still it is only slowly that this ha- has happened and it's, although scientifically we are able to detect it much earlier, it doesn't really kind of percolate to people's experience. Now, unfortunately, we have arrived at a time where we have already seen one degree of global warming, uh, and we are also experiencing the effects of that. We have had multiple global bleaching events of coral reefs. That means coral reefs that are severely impacted by warming waters, by episodes of very warm water, and if this happens repeatedly, then these ecosystems are actually in a, in a stead, will be in a steady decline and they will basically die back. So now we are at a, at a point where these impacts become tangible, become visible. We, we think about many of the extremes we have observed in, in North America, in the, in the developing world, uh, also in Europe, in Russia we think about the heat wave. All these events are made more, more probable or are influenced by climate change, by the background of a warmer globe that we live on. We understand and we know that climate change is happening because we have measurements around the globe that tell us that uh, the globe as a whole is warming up. We also understand the physics that make the globe warm up. We understand the greenhouse gas effect of carbon dioxide and of other gases. Um, So also there we understand the fundamental physics. Now, if one says that he or she does not believe in climate change, it's pretty much like saying that one doesn't believe in thermometers. And one can definitely say that, but I would not put a lot of trust in such a person. Why do we know that humans are causing this change? Because climate has varied in the past. Well, that is because we also understand why the climate has varied in the past. We understand that small changes in, in how much energy is, is emitted by the sun. If the, the earth changes its distance to the sun, we get from one ice age to, to the other. But we also know that today this is not happening. And we can measure the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we can determine that this carbon dioxide comes from fossil fuels. So we know that the increase in carbon dioxide that we see in the atmosphere is due to our burning of fossil fuels. And there is a very clear scientific link between those two. I don't trust experts. That's why I haven't hired anyone to proofread my script for me when I can proofread it perfectly well myself. It's intellectual snobbery to suggest that in order to be a doctor, you need to take medical exams. I mean, I'm not a doctor. Are you honestly saying that I can't operate on someone? That I'm not allowed? (laughs) Well, too bad, because I'm operating on a man next week on the hamstring in his arm. And if you think I need to go to university to do that, you're a snob. Hiya, I'm an international human rights lawyer, sort of, and I can totally get people off, probably. Check it out, lubricum linque non facile trendum est, I have no idea what it means. It's like lawyer talk for not guilty, I imagine. Just because I don't know what I'm talking about doesn't mean I don't get a say. My opinion is as valid as anyone else's and should therefore be given the same platform. Okay, push Mrs Phillips, the baby's like... Well, I don't know the words, but it's like literally hanging half out of your body. 
Right, now I think I need to check whether the stringy bit is around the baby's neck. Um, actually, what do books know? It's probably fine. We suffered a very bad house fire. Just because instead of watching the chip pan, I was Googling whether chicken can be eaten raw. It can, despite what Google says. So the kitchen's ablaze and my husband started to dial 999. I said to him, these firefighters seem to have a monopoly on putting out fires just because they've trained. I think I can put out a fire. So I threw water on the chip pan and the upshot is my husband's funeral is next week. And I'll be conducting it, thank you very much. Don't trust these funeral directors or morticians. His body's perfectly fine in the freezer. I don't need any fancy qualifications to fix the gas in this house. Oh, what? So I'm not corgi registered? It'll be fine. I'll just finish my fag. Right, what does that do? It is Friday the 24th of May. I am in Westminster. Theresa May resigned about an hour ago, but I'm not here for that. I'm here for the Youth Strike for Climate, which, as I speak, is gathering in Parliament Square. I can see lots of people here with parents. There are school groups here with teachers. Let's go and talk to a few people. Our future! about it because our school doesn't do much about it and we kind of want to rebel against them yeah i think that's the main reason is your school happy you're here are they annoyed you're here they're secretly happy they're secretly happy but they are annoyed, annoyed yeah. for sure really yes yeah. no school missing for but you it's our future here our future not, yes. they've ruined it for us now it's our turn to take charge With you, <laughs> is it? Oh, brilliant! Hiding in the shadows. Hiding in the shadows. Yeah. Do you tell me why you're here today? Um, because I really want people to actually start doing something about the climate. Because yeah. it's kind of annoying how everyone is just protesting and then no one's doing anything about it at all. What does your sign say? Um, stop burning our future. Did you make it. Yes. How long did it take you? Um, around half an hour. So many, so many creative signs, I love it. Um, Dad, you, so you're here with your daughter. I'm just keeping an eye on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are you happy that your daughter's taking an interest oh, in yeah. schools? Oh yeah, oh yes. Is her school happy? No. Save our planet, 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 save our planet. I want you to support it, like we told our teachers. Our head of year told us to go, he's like everyone should have um, a reusable water bottle. He's very like pro. And we've had assemblies on it. Like last yeah, week we had an assembly about it. So yeah. we're here because the earth is buggered, and that's it really. So we're trying to come here to do what we little we can do. Our future. Climate change is a huge global challenge, but definitely every individual can help and contribute to solutions to this problem. There are clear things that we can do in our personal lives. We can, we can think and we can adopt sustainable lifestyles. That means we can kind of try and reduce the amount of energy we use. We can try and reduce the amount of 
carbon dioxide we produce with our actions. For example, choosing a train instead of a, a flight to go somewhere or to go on holidays. But it's also very important to know that the solution to this problem will not be just by changing small things at home. Several of the contributions to climate change are very systemic or society-wide. As a person, we cannot decide for a train to be built or a train, train track to be built. This is, these are government decisions and long-term investments that need to be made. We can also, as a single person, not decide whether we want to build a, a coal-fired power plant, a gas-powered power plant, whether we want to have electric cars or infrastructure for electric cars or nuclear power or renewables. All these very large and long-term decisions are often made at the level of policymakers and of government. Therefore, as an individual, if this is something you, f you feel that needs to be tackled, it is important to talk to government, to talk to your decision makers, to the people that you elect to sit and to represent you in government and tell them that this is something you care about and that is essential to you, so that they also reflect that position when they make their decision in government. Climate strikes are a really interesting expression of societal concern about the future by people, yeah, by people that will definitely be affected mm -hmm. for large parts of their lives by impacts that we have not seen yet today. And I think they stand on a very strong moral position, both because of this intergenerational tension that there is, that we have to start solving the problem now in order to safeguard, let's say, an acceptable climate for our future generations. What is interesting about uh, the climate strikes is that they acknowledge that they don't have all the knowledge. They clearly call for any targets and any actions to be science-based, to be in accordance to the findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So I think that's also a very strong position to say we do believe in science, we want you to act according to the science, uh, we want you to, to follow the insights and the findings of the best available scientists and science available. And I think that's a very strong position. After my PhD, I moved to an institute uh, in, near Vienna, which is called uh, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. This is a very special place, actually. It was an institute that was founded in the 70s between the US and the Soviet Union as the only place globally where scientists from East and West would collaborate on global problems. And of course, in the 90s, with, with the breakup of the, of the Warsaw Pact and the Eastern Bloc, this institute went through some kind of a reinvention of its goals. And now they still work very much on these global problems that are too large for one discipline or one country to solve by themselves. And examples of these are, for example, water, energy, population, ecosystems, and so on. So they are worked on questions of direction, linking again what we know of, of our Earth system, and now more directly on how the, how the energy system can, can transition to a 
to a low carbon system. Yeah, or zero carbon is what you said. Mr. Yeah, zero carbon system. Yeah, yeah, zero carbon system or in the case of the energy system, even to a state where by producing energy we actually actively remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Is that a, is that a possibility? There are different ways in which we can do that. And uh, one of those ways is by combining bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And what does that mean is that we, we grow plants which during their growth kind of take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We harvest them and then we produce energy out of them. While we combust them and for example to produce uh, electricity, we don't release the carbon dioxide or the gases into the atmosphere but we clean and capture them and then we compress them and we store them underground in depleted oil fields or in gas fields. This is definitely a technical solution that is widely discussed, but there are also important challenges with these kind of solutions. For example, bioenergy uses land. Land that we also use for agriculture and bioenergy production also uses water. Uh, water that we use for drinking water, but also for irrigation of uh, food crops. So there is a clear potential competition between those two uses of land. So one has to be careful. This is not a silver bullet that will solve everything for us in the long term. So therefore it is really important to implement stringent emission reductions in the near term so that we don't have to rely on these still quite speculative technologies that can have important trade-offs with other societal goals that we have, food security, water security, even, even some of the more ethical questions of, of land ownership and so on. There are pilot plants that are doing this, but the big problem is the scale at which this yeah. is required. And it is clear that it is always going to be more expensive to capture a gas, clean it, compress it, transport it and put it on the ground than to release it simply into yeah. the atmosphere. So that means this is a technology that will never ever happen if there is no clear long-term climate policy or policy signal. This technology also requires large investments over multiple decades. Again, if these investors don't have the guarantee that 20 years from now, government still wants us to reduce emissions, then, they, then those investments will likely not be made because they are too risky. Measures that reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions can provide multiple benefits. For example, it is not a bad idea to think about healthy diets in general, not just reducing, for example, meat consumption for climate change. It is also generally good to have a good public transport system or an electrified transport system so that we can deal with air pollution or we can reduce the air pollution in our uh, larger cities. And these are really benefits that are immediately felt and that are also a direct effect of these measures that we would put in place and that also help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And this is something that was also highlighted by this latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is that we really need to look at those areas where the larger synergies between climate change mitigation or protecting the climate and other societal goals or other societal aspirations can be found. And what the report found is that particularly on the what they call demand side, so 
through behavioral change and by changing the amount of energy and resources we use, there can be lots of synergies and multiple benefits across other objectives or other societal objectives. I'm going to leave you by reading an extract from the keynote speech on climate, which Carl Sagan made in 1990. I'm not going to do the voice, so you'll just have to imagine his wonderful tones. If you burn a lump of coal somewhere, the carbon dioxide goes up into the atmosphere. And you know, carbon dioxide molecules are exceptionally stupid. They don't know anything about national boundaries. They don't have passports. They are wholly innocent of the important concept of national sovereignty. They just casually cross over national boundaries one after the other. There is a lesson. The world is a unity. The national boundaries have no bearing on these global environmental issues. No one nation can solve this problem by itself. It has to be all nations working together. Solving these problems requires a transnational and a transgenerational perspective. To my mind, that's a very grown-up kind of perspective. Deprovincializing, dechauvinizing, an awareness of one species on one exquisite, fragile planet. And that's why I think that these very serious global environmental issues may have a deep silver lining. The binding up of the planet, the end of our adolescence, the approach to the maturity of our species. That was actually pretty interesting. I'll give you that pod. Perhaps you'd like to learn about the migration ships which transported 0.05% of the human population to a new home world. Ah, no thanks. Depressing. Revision time's over anyway. Tell me about an old world television programme called Duckula. Duckula Ducktales. Follow-up question. Were most of their programmes about ducks? What's going on? No Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hill-Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music is by Kevin MacLeod. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>